This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. How did IBM, General Electric, and other companies become growth leaders? Why is it that some companies lag behind and stay behind? Those are the questions that Wharton marketing professor George Day asks and answers in his book, Innovation Prowess, A Leadership Strategy to Accelerate Growth. Recently, Day spoke with David Heckman, practice leader, senior management at the Wharton School's Aristide Institute of Executive Education, about why innovation prowess is the key to growth leadership. Hi, I'm Dave Heckman. I'm here with Professor George Day to interview him about his new book, Innovation Prowess. George, welcome to Knowledge at Warden. Thank you, Dave. I'm uh, very, very excited about sharing my thinking on uh, my new book, Innovation Prowess. And uh, the subtitle is Leadership Strategies for Accelerating Growth. So uh, let's start out by putting a question mark behind that title and say, what's the question I'm trying to answer? And I've been working on this for now over 25 years to understand what distinguishes consistent growth leaders, that is companies that grow organically with their own resources, and what separates them from growth laggards. So I'm looking at growth leaders like IBM, uh, Samsung, Lego, uh, and companies of that caliber to try to discern over many, many years what sets them apart. Uh, the answer is, comes in two parts. Firstly, they have uh, what I call growth-seeking discipline. And th this is sort of uh, symptomatic uh, and, and resonates with Peter Drucker's notion that innovation is a skill just like learning the piano that uh, you build when you practice and invest a lot of time. So it's a, it's a replicable and disciplined skill. but. That's only half the story. So you've got this growth-seeking discipline. You have to marry that closely with innovation ability. So innovation ability is uh, got three parts to it. Your culture, which uh, really overwhelms everything. So culture and leadership are the uh, first factors. And, and so it has to be uh, not obviously a growth-seeking, but risk-tolerant and experimenting. So there's a lot of aspects to culture that are important. The second two pieces of this uh, uh, organizational ability to innovate are capabilities, and I'm looking at a number of uh, interesting adaptive capabilities which these growth leaders have. They can experiment, they uh, really invest heavily in understanding their markets, uh, they're very, very good at open innovation and partnering and sharing, and uh, they do a lot of experimenting. They don't feel they have the answers, but they're gonna try a lot of different things. They'll uh, follow that mantra of start small, uh, but think big, fail fast, and scale quickly if you get it right. And so they, they just get ahead of the laggards, and they stay ahead. The laggards are always catching up. So two parts, uh, you have discipline plus ability. And that's what I mean by prowess. Fabulous. Many senior leaders really can't see their way to achieve next year's growth objectives. How can innovation prowess help them? Uh, let me uh, 
frame that, David, that, that's a f great question. Uh, but it goes back to, I, I think it can be understood through a question uh, that uh, a research study posed uh, a few years back to senior officers of a whole array of global companies. And the result they found was that only 29% of this sample of senior executives were very confident that they could reach their ambitious organic growth objectives. Now, I have shared this with many, many uh, executive teams and uh, uh, executive program participants, and they all get it. They say, well, uh, what about the other 70% who were only somewhat or not at all confident they could reach their growth objectives? And they can give me dozens of reasons. And embedded in those reasons why there's a lack of confidence comes the pathway to building prowess. Uh, so for example, uh, I hear a lot of uh, explanations around short-termism. And so demand for short-term performance drives out long-run investments. Uh, lack of leadership commitment uh, and lack of discipline, being reactive. Uh, we see an awful lot of explanations around uh, unwillingness to make long-term investments. Or if we do make them, the short-term profit pressures pull the resources back out of uh, the long-term to meet short-term demands from the sales force, from the customers. And these are all important, uh, but they, they take away from the growth engine. And then lastly, and, and, and perhaps most interesting, People are very averse to the big risks that come from uh, substantial innovation. Now, I've arrayed all of these on a spectrum between what I call small-eye innovation, which is what you've got to do to uh, stay in the game. These are uh, upgrades, uh, new versions, the next generation of technology, but you're still in your same business and you're simply staying competitive. That's the small eye end of the spectrum. Big eye is breakthrough, blue ocean, and uh, I've done a lot of research through the Mac Center here at, at Wharton, and we have a pretty good sense of just how risky they are. But you're looking at 85 to 90% failure rates in the big eye end of the spectrum. What we have figured uh, and, and learned, and, and it's consistent with what other researchers and uh, consultants have found, that a the sweet spot is really adjacencies. That is, that they're adjacent in uh, terms of drawing on your technology base, your production prowess, and so forth. They also are adjacent in that they uh, leverage your brand, so your brand promise means something. You have some understanding of the market. You know how to get to the market, the channels, and so forth are important. So uh, we, we, we focus a lot on uh, maintaining a consistent focus on these adjacencies as the, as the real growth engine. Thanks, George. Any advice you can offer about allocating capital and resources towards big eye and little eye innovation? I mean, I think there's a lot of, of uh, confusion around where to invest to, to align with strategy. The, uh, that, that's a, that is a uh, question that has both a short-term and a long-term answer to it. In the short run, the research is fairly consistent in showing that companies that want to grow uh, above the industry rate uh, probably invest 
70% of what I'll call those small I innovations. Because that's what you got to do to stay competitive, to meet the needs of uh, channel partners and customers. But between uh, 10 and 20% on this area of adjacencies. Now that's the initial resource allocation. The problem is uh, many companies start out that way, but they um, start sucking resources back from the, the riskier adjacencies and big eye innovations in order to fund the short-term stuff and, by the way, meet their short-term profit targets. So the uh, allocation often starts out in an optimal fashion, but then it loses uh, that uh, focus. So you, you now are not investing as much as you should. And uh, we're seeing this playing out uh, in, in, in a lot of organizations which allow the operating managers control over long-term uh, big eye innovations and adjacencies. Now, that's not all bad, but let's look at the story of Procter Gamble recently. They uh, have not had uh, anywhere near the, the past track record in breakthrough innovations that they used to have. And they trace that back, and this is their diagnosis, that uh, some years ago we gave, that is Procter Gamble, gave the operating managers, the division general managers, uh, control over the innovation budget. And uh, inevitably, the short-term pressures won out. Contrast that with uh, GE, where Jeff Immelt has had imagination breakthroughs for uh, many years now, and these are big, big projects, like getting into batteries, which is not a business they've been in before. And he personally, uh, through a strategic fund, uh, invests in those, but more importantly, he's watching those constantly. So every time he goes into uh, a, a business, he's got with him a dossier on an imagination breakthrough that this company should be working, or this division should be working on. So management commitment is sustained, resources are sustained, they don't get siphoned off into short run issues and, and opportunities. So that's the way uh, you, you, you stay in the game. So you have discipline in finding these big opportunities, and then you have the ability to stay committed and focused. That's great, George. Um, the late Apple CEO Steve Jobs once said, don't let the voice of others drown out your own internal voice. Um, how do you connect that with outside-in versus inside-out thinking, and how do you reconcile that balance within the organization's innovation process? So the, um, the, the distinction between outside-in and inside-out is a uh, question of where you start. And, uh, and, and that's uh, true in defining a, designing a competitive strategy or uh, an innovation strategy and carrying that out. By outside in, I mean you start with the market and the latent needs, frustrations, problems that the customers have, but you also start with the competitors and where they are. So uh, you're looking for innovations that create new value for customers that they're willing to pay for. So that's the outside in perspective. You're standing in the shoes of the customers who, by the way, um, won't be able to tell you what the product looks like. They can tell you vividly about their frustrations and their problems. And the, uh, if you think about uh, Apple's uh, breakthroughs, uh, they're often built upon the inadequacies of, say, MP3 players. 
and where the iPod was a, a brilliant example of understanding why people, why, why the 15 companies with MP3 players weren't getting anywhere. It was a terrible experience. And Steve Jobs saw that, had the vision with his team, and uh, of course spends an enormous amount of time with his design chief, and they're really thinking through every piece of that customer experience to deliver superior customer value. So that's the outside-in perspective, keeping in mind the customer's experience, satisfying their latent needs, trying to anticipate them, but you have to mesh that. And this is this, again, this marriage notion. Uh, you also have to have powerful inside-out capabilities. You need to have mastery of the technology, but, and, and you have to have the engineering skills, the production skills, the supply chain skills. So it's, uh, it's, it's a question of where you start. If you start off with just the technology, looking for a solution, you won't get there. Great, thanks George. You, you describe in your book that it's somewhat counterproductive to frame the choice between uh, organic and inorganic growth rather than finding the right balance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the, uh, the book is um, uh, first and foremost about growth leaders defined as superior rates of organic growth, that is with their own resources. Um, and the distinction I draw here is with inorganic mergers and acquisitions and so forth. But these in fact are highly complementary. So let's think about Cisco. They uh, view their innovation uh, alternatives along a spectrum, starting with uh, build, if you like, which is, uh, so, so to build it is organic growth. And uh, the other end of the spectrum is buy. You, you buy a, uh, uh, an access to a market. So they have, they're masterful at acquiring and integrating firms. Uh, but along this spectrum, if, if you uh, think about all the things they do, they've got uh, what I would call closed innovation. Everything is done in-house. Uh, open innovation, they've got a lot of partners. They're very good at partnering. But they have internal incubators, which uh, are independent of the rest of the organization. And that's sort of halfway along the spectrum. Then they have uh, external venture groups and venture partners that they invest in. And then finally, mergers and acquisitions. <clears throat> but even an acquisition can be in service of an organic growth strategy because you may want to use that small toehold acquisition to get insights into a market or to buy a technology you don't have. And by the way, IBM is another company that is masterful at uh, making these kinds of acquisitions in service of organic growth. So they, it, it, it's, uh, I, I think it's uh, misleading to distinguish sharply and say it's either or. In fact, it's both, and in fact, it's all of them. You just have to figure out uh, how ambitious your growth aspirations are and then how much you're willing to invest in each of these areas. Thanks, George. In the book, you uh, one of the centerpieces of the book, in fact, are these 14 innovation pathways. Uh, in closing, can you just talk a little bit about what those are, what inspired you to develop them, and how they can help organizations drive their innovation? So this is probably a good way to kind of pull things together. Uh, so we have discipline on one side and ability on the other. In the discipline piece, 
you've got to have an aggressive growth strategy that really signals your aspirations. Second part of that discipline is what I'll call uh, divergence. So you're casting a pretty wide net looking for attractive growth opportunities. You want uh, not just what comes to you, that's sort of a reactive approach, but you're aggressively seeking uh, growth opportunities. And then the last step in this disciplined approach to growth seeking is convergence, where you select the best and you aggressively screen out. Okay, back to full spectrum innovation. Where does one look? And I'm talking about active looking, not just passive waiting for ideas to come to you, but where does one look? So the, the notion of full spectrum innovation has 14 growth pathways in it. Uh, and so I created these growth pathways by essentially decomposing uh, strategy into two parts, the value proposition and the business model. And there's eight different pathways to expand and elaborate your value proposition, but another seven or eight uh, are equally feasible for business model innovation, including different ways to generate uh, and capture value. Uh, so modified processes, uh, new monetization methods. Uh, and this work uh, it really does build on the shoulders of many others. So a lot of work we've done in the Mac Center, um, but work by people like IDEO, uh, Clay Christensen, have all contributed my understanding of what the possible pathways are, and then I've applied them with many of my clients. So uh, my clients are the first ones to tell me, by the way, whether I've got a good idea or not. They're, that's the discipline I live with, and uh, I've been very fortunate to have really, really uh, demanding, interesting, and challenging clients. Well, thank you, George. Thanks for being with us, and thanks for taking the time to tell us about your new book, Innovation Prowess. Thank you very much, Dave. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.